Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Banaf Shemizha. My guest, Asad Saleh, is Assistant Professor of Arabic, Comparative Literature, and Cultural Studies in the Department of Languages and Literature and the Middle East Center at the University of Utah. His research focuses on issues related to autobiography and displacement in Arabic literature and political culture in the Arab world. His book, Voices of the Arab Spring, Personal Stories from the Arab Revolutions, is narrated by dozens of activists and everyday individuals, documenting the unprecedented events that led to the collapse of dictatorial regimes in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. Asad al-Saleh, welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Asad, I'm wondering if you could begin by saying a few words about yourself. You're not limited to these questions, but where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in literature, specifically autobiographies. Oh, sure. Uh, I was born in Syria, a small town on the Euphrates called Al-Salhiya. And it was... uh, I grew up in a very nice uh, environment. Uh, I remember my early years, we didn't have electricity in the town. It was all like part of the, uh, what I read it now, the uh, pre-Islamic poetry, kind of the same culture where you feel everything around you is nature, not a lot of connection actually with what's going on politically or even socially. So I grew up in a very kind of uh, remote area in Syria, Al-Bukamal is uh, part of uh, Deir zor and uh, this is like the last uh, cosmopolitan area before you go to Iraq from the eastern uh, region of Syria. Uh, technically, if you are talking about Damascus being the center of Syria, this is the farthest that you can imagine. Went to school there for my primary education. My secondary school uh, was in the uh, city of Deir zor which is kind of the governorate of that region. Uh, went to Damascus University for my bachelor degree, which was in English literature. Finished also a kind of postgraduate degree. Then moved to Kuwait for two years, uh, teaching there for uh, secondary school kids. 2000 till 2002, end of 2002, I came to the United States. Also started my postgraduate education in Kansas, finished MA in English literature, then decided that this is not my thing. I mean, I I like literature. I like English literature as well. But I felt I need to go back to my language and heritage and uh, move to the University of Arkansas to study basically comparative literature. But the reason for it was to uh, find uh, some uh, academic training in Arabic literature, and I had wonderful experience there. 2010, moved to University of Utah after finishing my PhD as assistant professor, uh, was involved immediately in the Arab Spring, I mean, intellectually, writing the book right after it happened. And since then, I am kind of pretty much following up with what's going on in the Arab world, in addition to other interests that I try to cover in my uh, writing and uh, scholarly contribution. So were you interested in autobiographies before the Arab Spring? Yes, uh, I was interested in it since I think 2003, when I first wrote my uh, graduate paper on Edward Said and uh, Fawaz Turki. Fawaz Turki is also a Palestinian author. Uh, He's not as prominent as Edward Said, though, but he's more like... uh, mouthful about his experience in the refugee camps in uh, Lebanon and uh, throughout, uh, through the other areas that he was forced to leave after being displaced from his town in Palestine. 
So I found the contrast between his style and Edward Said's uh, style in Out of Place, the popular memoir, very interesting. And I start writing on them. And then I realized that maybe other Palestinian experiences will be more like informing the intellectual approach to autobiography based on a certain like pattern of uh, grievances. And I found that displacement is the major grievance among the Palestinians who wrote autobiography. So I tried to uh, collect as many as I could, a number that's manageable in a, in a dissertation. And I wrote mine uh, starting since, I think, 2003, starting focusing on my dissertation. And it was basically on displaced Palestinians who wrote autobiographies. And I'm trying to see what are the kind of ethics and uh, issues that we see in an autobiography written primarily by displaced people. A project that I should go back to and maybe put it in a book format. Yeah, that's actually the origin of my interest in autobiography. When the Arab Spring came, I had an eye on seeing how people would react to it because the Arab Spring is it's like a cultural moment, the same as displacement for the Palestinians. So I tried to find out what would the Arabs say about this moment, as the Palestinians did back in the 50s or the 60s. But I realized this is not going to happen like your weight and then people will do that because, you know, it's not like the typical uh, product that you expect from any moment. I, I assume you know that we would expect a lot of journalism coming from the region covering the Arab Spring maybe other books trying to theorize about it. So I felt maybe we should uh, give voices to those who are participating in the Arab Spring. See there's kind of what they say about it. And if there, if there was a chance to get them write about it in an autobiographical format, that would be great. And uh, the idea, I think, came to me spring 12, 2011, I was also teaching a course on literature and revolution. And uh, I realized that uh, rather than just tell my students about what historians said about uh, popular revolutions, whether the Bolshevik, the French, the American, uh, I wanted actually to include uh, personal narratives, even as uh, remote they are, that just to have a flavor of what people felt about, say, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution or the American Revolution or the French Revolution. It was uh, hard to find the, such narratives. Uh, you find tons of uh, historical uh, enterprises, but not kind of the oral history collection of narratives. And I felt like that might be the same with the Arab Spring if we wait without doing something like this so that people will tell their stories. And in the future, anyone who is interested in the Arab Spring will go back to these narratives and say, hey, let's, let's, let's listen to the Arabs themselves. What did they say about their revolutions? And uh, started from there, just the idea, which I, when I go back, I really appreciate the idea more than the process, because the idea was kind of the drive to accomplish all this. Could you tell me a little bit about the participants? How did you find them? What was their social educational backgrounds? What 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 was their political commitments? It was actually uh, set in this way. Uh, the Arab Spring has been labeled as a Facebook revolution or Twitter uprisings and so on. Uh, I tried to use the same medium that has uh, given these people the means by which they can voice their dissent, uh, organize their uh, protest movements, and try to uh, find out from the same like uh, uh, social media world that they created to push for change, uh, go to that world and try to connect myself with these people. 
So uh, I used actually uh, a Facebook account and I tried to jump from one Facebook page to another uh, looking for the major, you know, major Facebook pages that were in a way in charge of uh, organizing sit-ins and organizing protests, demonstrations, and try to see who's active and uh, what are the names over there? Check uh, kind of the verification of these people. Try to connect with them through private chatting. Uh, it was a little bit time consuming, but eventually I could actually make a net. But that was not the only way. I also tried to uh, meet people. There are many people in the U.S. who were originally from Syria, Yemen, or uh, Egypt, Libya even. So I tried also to connect with p real people, I mean, someone like you, and say, hey, do you know anybody in, the, in uh, Cairo or Egypt in, uh, in general who is actually uh, from this youth uh, movement, uh, participants in the Arab Spring who might be interested in telling their stories? And Word of mouth helped a lot to actually connect with people throughout the process. I'll also try to uh, even contact some, you know, in academia we have our listserv, so try to see if someone in, um, in uh, Middle Eastern universities knows some people who are participating in this and then try to connect with them. I think the collection was the hardest process just to get people, because once you try to convince them that this is a, a worthwhile project, uh, mostly they would agree to start the process. But uh, a lot of times people will feel like, why would I even respond to you? We have by then the uh, Facebook world and the Twitter is kind of uh, overwhelmed to the degree that you might find a lot of people who are trying to connect with you and I. You're not necessarily in the belief that they are who they said they are, usually fake names and stuff like that. So a lot of people kind of, I would say maybe thousands, ignored my call for help. But eventually we got enough number to cover the Arab Spring from as many aspects as possible. In terms of backgrounds, I tried actually to uh, start uh, the focus on the gender balance because... Uh, a lot of people were, even before the Arab Spring, I mean, it was always kind of the male who is first approached and they will tell what they think. And uh, and I think during the Arab Spring, the balance, the balance of gender was always there, so you have to keep it up. And I try to uh, mix my narratives, usually half men, half female, and uh, it worked on that ground very well. I'm satisfied with the distribution. But even within uh, that uh, scale, I tried to uh, find people from different backgrounds. And finding, for example, someone from Egypt who is either a taxi driver or someone who just sells bread, which the, the latter I had the story from that person, someone who was just selling falafel and not educated, basically. It was not easy to get because you cannot get these people by Facebook or by listservs or even academic or even personal connections. But I eventually, uh, from some of the participants, um, I realized they know thousands of people. So... Some participants help me to connect with others. So once you know few participants who are willing to coordinate with you, it's easy to tell them, I need someone like uh, from this type of uh, educational background or from this uh, class. I want a writer, someone who is interested in journalism, and they would help. And I really, really appreciate all my participants in the book. They are like the best you can work with because they helped a lot to connect me with even uh, some female participants who were eventually not available. Like I tried to uh, get uh, the account of Tawakul Karman. I think before she got the award, the Nobel Prize, 
because she was very active. Uh, I tried to connect with other people, like what we call big names, but uh, not all of them I could reach. At the same time, I was very happy that I could cover uh, different backgrounds, uh, class, political commitments. Mostly at that time, they were anti-regimes. I didn't check a lot about their political backgrounds because uh, they were kind of unified with this uh, moment. Uh, None of them actually tried to emphasize their a prayer Arab Spring affiliation, political affiliation. I remember I'm, I, I could actually get the uh, account of a, a popular Syrian descent figure, Radwan Ziada, for example. And uh, basically he didn't focus a lot on what he did before the Arab Spring as much as what the regime is, was doing then. Or I think uh, if I remember... Clearly, he was telling stories of some of his relatives in Syria. So a lot of these people try to, I would say, forget their political affiliation and kind of merge themselves with the massive protest movement that was occurring at the time. And kind of that moment was defining who they are and who the regimes are at that time and uh, try to shape their future. As you can see, a lot of narratives are very hopeful. And we might now read them with kind of a little bit of disappointment that we, uh, this, these kind of uh, passionate narratives are not reflective of the reality that they, didn't, they, they, they anticipated, but they didn't get now. Yeah. I'm just wondering, as you look back at the narratives en masse, what pattern do they follow? What sort of um, do these thinkers talk about themselves um, in the roles that they take during the revolution? Do they talk about fear? Do they talk about their comrades? Do they, as you said, do they talk about what life was before the revolution? Do they tell you about what they're expecting? What are some of the things that keep coming up? What are some trends yeah, there is something that I, I should uh, preface for for this uh, question, Bef- because I expected people to te- to talk to me or their imagined readers the way they wanted, and for me as someone who's you know shaping this process from the beginning, I tried actually. That, I mean that's fine. We want them to tell their stories without any type of uh, mediation. Except that I, uh, because I want it, you know, when you do documentaries, you assume everyone is saying things uh, spontaneously. But we know that there is editing process. Uh, I didn't try to edit anything. Uh, but beforehand, I tried to give some kind of major guidelines for my participants so that when they start writing or telling their narratives, they kind of, okay, you have always uh, great uh, things to say. Why don't you follow these guidelines so that we will have a pattern as you, as you uh, expect to happen? So that uh, we will have a di- diverse, diverse patterns in the narratives themselves. So I tried first to ask them, uh, instead of, uh, you know, spending too much of your time cursing the regimes and <laughs> showing how that <laughs> how much bad they are. <laughs> Try, you know, to take a, a kind of a global look and see personally why you feel like w- what exactly they did to you. Just tell us personally. You don't need to, you know, just follow the the narrative that's common, which we know. But we need to know exactly, like as a person, you grow up in Yemen or Egypt, Libya, Syria. Why you felt like this is a right uh, procedure for massive protest movement to remove these dictators. And uh, I think that helped a lot for them to answer a major question that I was trying to get answers for, which is why these people joined the Arab Spring, not themselves only, in general. Like why Arabs actually started the Arab Spring? 
And by answering this, as you may notice, they will go back maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago and tell stories of what happened, why they are not happy with the Mubarak regime, why they are not happy with Assad's regime, why they are not happy with Gaddafi. What did Gaddafi do in the past? What kind of brutalities he was involved in? Why Mubarak made Egypt the kind of dysfunctional on many aspects the country it was? Like, what is wrong with the uh, health sector in Egypt? And I think some of the narratives focused on that. Uh, corruption. Oh, how did they destroy constitutions by preparing their sons for uh, the next uh, generation uh, dictators? That was a major question, like why you feel people actually should or did protest. The other question, what happened during the Arab Spring that you joined? So basically, I tried also to, to know from them uh, what they did, because uh, there is a tendency for people uh, to say, oh, I, I'm not that significant. Why don't, why don't I like tell you what's going on? like a reporter for you. And I didn't want that. I, I, I'm sure there were many people doing this. I said I wanted to be individualized, personalized. Like what you exactly did? What happened to you? Uh, who gave you the call to demonstrate on this day? What did you do? How did your family react to it? And so on. And that would, that would be the second question. What happened? And uh, the first question was, why? Why it happened? And I see the patrons are following these kind of uh, major guidelines. Yeah, what are the spots that we see from the narratives? I mean, it's diverse, which is something I really feel very happy about. Uh, some people, you know, told uh, stories about their families, why they were not happy with them participating. Some of them focused on still the collective, like what the... Uh, what their friends did, what are the moves people on Facebook did to get people organized, and what and then what what the police did for participants, uh, what kind of brutalities that we know for sure now happened, they encountered. Some of them, of course, this is the most uh, intriguing and uh, riveting part. I I felt those who went to uh, a prison in the process of the Arab Spring. And I feel I always want to go back to see how they were treated and what they said to their to the people who were torturing or trying to coerce them. People who uh, witnessed a fighting in Libya, for example, we have one narrative. Very interesting. You, you see kind of a flavor of the freedom fighter at the time. Though I later became very suspicious about the whole concept of fight uh, fighters against the regime because I am totally against the armed uh, conflict geared towards change. I don't I don't believe personally this is the right way, but a lot of people at the time didn't know that would be eventually maybe a wrong thing to to uh, have. Maybe they were forced to it because they cannot find alternatives. Maybe it was an act of self-defense. One female author from Tunisia told a story about how her nephew, I guess, mm -hmm. was killed. That was very uh, touching and uh, very moving narrative because we have encountered more of this type of narratives in Syria when we have, I mean, personally, I lost my nephew, I lost my uncle as a result of this war happening in Syria. Even though they were uh, like a uh, few uh, uh, stories we heard in Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Yemen, more actually, uh, I didn't have a chance before the book to actually meet someone who had a dear one fell in this, uh, in this process as a fallen hero. I think I almost everything, every aspect of the Arab Spring that I can imagine now, looking back at them, I think was covered. Demonstrations, what they did, the Syrian uh, narratives are very interesting because I know how hard it is to even be part of a demonstration. I mean, this is unheard of before the Arab Spring in Syria. 
So I was always like uh, very extremely interested to know every single detail about why, what happened, what the reaction of the security agents to that. And uh, I think they will be always uh, reflective of what's going on or what was going on uh, in Syria. It's, it's no longer uh, the case where people can organize demonstrations anymore, actually, in Syria. So maybe that what we get in, in the Syrian chapter is uh, unique because for the last three years, nobody could actually be part of a demonstration in Syria at all, neither in the areas controlled by the regime or in the areas controlled by different factions or brigades or uh, whatever they call themselves. Yeah. I was wondering if you could pick some of the stories that you like the best. Oh, I don't talk about that. That's not... (laughs) That's not something I expected, but I don't think it's fair. I would try to be diplomatic here. Yeah, to, uh, yeah, I guess so. Pick a story and say this is the best. I think every story... Not, maybe not the best, but uh, the ones that moved you. For instance, the... Tell me, I mean, I'm more interested about you, Azri, because I am too much, I would say, familiar with the stories. What did you, what did I like? Yeah, I would see maybe how you reacted to some of... Because I went through some of the stories were maybe small paragraphs at the beginning, and I tried to push for more writing right. on the part of the author. So I have to say, in the Egypt one, I really... I The the one done by, by uh, Adil Abdul... I, Adil I don't know if it's Bafar. last... Abdel Ghaffar, yeah. yeah. Um, I know him personally. He's a graduate student now somewhere in Europe, I guess in Australia. Yeah. Um, he's an activist. He's male. He's 32. And he was he lives in Cairo or lived in Cairo at he that time. He lived in Cairo, but uh, currently finishing his PhD. If not done now, uh, I think he was... Um, somewhere in either in Europe or Australia. But I had been in contact with him uh constantly about his uh, narrative as well as his future plans yeah he it's written uh, for, uh, i think i didn't he didn't want to identify himself with his educational background which is fine but uh, this is someone who i think is interested in political science someone who has this uh, sophisticated style to narrate the story of Egyptians, why they had to revolt against Mubarak. And yeah, I agree with you. It's very uh, it's very moving, but maybe I should listen to you more about it. I'm interested in this, this particular person because, you know, he seemed to be able to contextualize what was happening on the ground those first few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the day that he's talking about is actually January 25th. And he starts out with 8 p.m., this 8 a.m., and then by the time 4 p.m. comes around. As you said, I'm not surprised with the background that he has, that he was able to specifically pinpoint what was different about what was happening as opposed to, to protests that he had uh, attended maybe in the past. Something changed during this protest uh, or some things. And he was able to, or at least the way that he saw it, and he was able to voice that and sort of put that into words. And I thought that was really, really powerful. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm just wondering if you could tell us what it is, what what, yeah, what sure. the epiphany is. that he's- I want to emphasize something here. In this uh, kind of typical narrative of uh, Egyptians, why they revolted, and uh, a lot of times people nowadays feel like, oh, the Arab Spring shouldn't have started in the beginning because now we have a messier Arab world than the one before the Arab Spring. But at, at the same time, they forget that it's, it's, it was not just like uh, the Arab people decided in one morning, hey, why don't we revolt? It's not, it might be a good thing. Well, why don't we take the risk? What's the reason? Maybe there is no reason. Let's just do it. No, actually, there are reasons, major reasons that uh, whether the Arab Spring existed or not, uh, people should pay attention to. For example, uh, I'm glad you took me to Adel Abdul Ghaffar. 
he talked about what uh, what was labeled in Egypt as the heredity hereditary project. Hereditary project is the one is the name or the term for uh, these dictators. Mostly four of them actually: Gaddafi, Mubarak, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and Bashar al-Assad. They were either preparing their sons, or like in the case of Bashar al-Assad, already a son of a dictator taken over the presidency in a constitutional democracy on, on paper and uh, lording over Syrians uh, with disregard to the constitution. I mean, I was in Syria when he changed the constitution in uh, five, ten minutes, making the age of the president from uh, 40 then to 34 the, the, his age at the time. Uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh was preparing his son, who is now uh, making some news and uh, even world media. Uh, Qaddafi was preparing Saif al-Islam, became uh, a star in uh, even Libyan politics uh, before the demise of Qaddafi. And of course, Husni Mubarak. Yeah. The, now he's saying something I want to read for your listeners, just a small paragraph. He said, Personally, if you allow me. Please, yes. Yeah. Personally, this uh, so-called hereditary project has always infuriated me. I viewed it as an insult to Egypt. I mean, uh, that, that's very understandable. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, as an insult to Egypt, its people, and its history. Well, maybe history will show that that was normal. But yeah, for him, he believes this is an insult to expect sons taking over their parents. Uh, the Assad family in Syria had completed their hereditary project. Was this to happen in Egypt too? Disbelief mixed with anger as I watched Mubarak's regime advance the project bit by bit over the years cementing it in Egyptian politics and economy. I mean, this is very eloquent way of describing what was going on in Egypt and why people felt their dignity is actually uh, being affected by this type of uh, dictator who is ignoring their constitution, ignoring the history. The, I would say the current, the modern history of Egypt, like never happened before where a president will pass the presidency to his son. Why Mubarak? I mean, he's not better than Hosni Mubarak, uh, Sadat or Jamal Abdel Nasser, who never thought even. It's like unbelievable how uh, when, when we compare it to the recent history of Egypt that would, this would happen in Egypt. But uh, he's saying that the economy of Egypt, as well as the politics, were kind of the fronts by which Mubarak was trying to advance this project. So basically you have Jamal taking, taking care of uh, Egyptian uh, economy for his own benefit. Uh, all the cronies of uh, uh, Egyptian uh, regime are being affiliated with the family and they are uh, helping this project to happen. Jamal being the son that was supposed to take over. Yeah, and it's not like he's also he's only involved in politics. There were so many economy projects that he has his hands in, and for the purpose of uh, making himself a powerful person in Egypt, and at the same time uh, preparing him for the presidency, which was almost happening. I, I I wouldn't be surprised had the Arab Spring not existed, that Jamal will be now the president of Egypt, because, you know, the same rhetoric will exist. He's the best available. Uh, he's already involved. Uh, he already knows what's going on in Egypt. Uh, and every media in Egypt is controlled and owned by a wealthy person affiliated to Mubarak family. So basically, you'll have the talking heads in Egypt kind of uh, cheering for him. Right. So going back to what you said earlier, you said that we, we just talked about the fact that there were quite solid reasons, uh, this hereditary situation being one of them, why the revolution was sort of right, the situation was ripe and ready for the revolution to happen. 
But I think what I found most amazing about the stories in the book was every once in a while in one of these narratives, I'd come across this particular person telling their story, explaining why it went from just a few people protesting into the street into a massive movement that finally toppled the dictator. What are your insights about having sort of gathered and thought about all these stories together? Could you could you tell us a little bit about that? And I, I, like I said, I was interested uh, specifically in Adel's story because he says something amazing. He has an amazing moment there where he points to this. It's on page 57 at the bottom of the page. He says, then something incredible happened. Yeah, the th- how people actually moved from being, as he called them, and I think others said, bystanders to participants. Yeah, not only the, the local uh, pattern, as you are describing, how uh, like a, a snowballing thing happened in Egypt, but also uh, I think a lot of them said why they picked up the revolution in their country and what, what was influencing them from outside. So if you read the Yemeni narratives, you feel there is a pattern of them saying, oh, the Tunisians did it, the Egyptians uh, had done it, why don't we do it? In the same way that Adil and others say, uh, people at the, at the beginning were just bystanders, they were, uh, they were not necessarily involved, but then when they, see, when they see what's going on, how maybe the police would react, to the participants of the demonstration or the sit-in, uh, they will uh, be actually drawn to this movement because they feel these are their sons and daughters and these people care about Egypt. They are not, as the media depicted them, as um, vandalizers or as people who are destroying Egypt. On the contrary, they are ready to die for Egypt. And I think that led I would say millions of people to actually believe in the ethics of the protest movement. In Libya, the same uh, people were so much uh, not buying the media uh, that was depicting Muammar al-Gaddafi as kind of the victim of his own people. On the contrary, uh, it was uh, the opposite. He was uh, threatening that he will smash it by force. And a lot of people were trying to protect their country by uh, standing in front of this uh, uh, brutal dictator who was, who was almost giving orders for his army to crush some restive areas. Uh, yeah, the uh, moment of, uh, I would say, kind of uh, the emergence of massive protest uh, is actually narrated clearly in these uh, stories where you see how people were reacting to what's going on in the spot of the Arab Spring, whether in a bus ride in Tunisia or by people watching it in Egypt or Yemen, and how it went from one country to another. You see there is a pattern of we have to do something. We have been suffering from the same experience. One thing I should add, though, Al Jazeera has been mentioned a lot in these narratives. So Arabia, which is kind of not necessarily by name, but Arab media actually, not only social media, helped a lot to make the Arab Spring kind of the norm for certain countries, though, not all of them, for good reasons, I mean. But uh, the Al Jazeera was trying to you know, play the the game of, yeah, this is a rosy uh, thing uh, uh, covering Egypt, for example, live all the time and trying to uh, create a, kind of a very overwhelming culture of everything is now shaken in the Arab world. And uh, eventually that led to, I think, in Syria, for example, to uh, being involved in some unethical provoking, I would say, on the uh, from these uh, media venues to make it almost always like a black and white. Mm. And I feel 
Uh, now, as we are encountering the Arab media with the post-Arab Spring, we feel what are the issues that these agendas that they have, not necessarily, I mean, they, they were uh, creating anything by themselves. They were trying, you know, to cover. The Arab Spring started regardless of the Arab media. But they would tell you in the narratives, I would say, uh, with a sense of innocence that this is what they were showing. But later we realized that it was not necessarily innocent from the part of these media venues. They tried to uh, maybe romanticize some aspects of the Arab Spring and neglect the others. Like you in Syria, for example, you hear stories or the news stories from the France, people who were fighting Bashar al-Assad. But you would, they would give hardly enough space for peaceful activists, for example. So Al Jazeera wouldn't make a lot of effort maybe to connect with someone like Kerman or uh, the kind of rational approach to uh, the Arab Spring, which is to keep up with the same principles, peaceful demonstrations geared towards uh, democratic change of regimes rather than uh, romanticizing armed conflicts as they did in uh, in Syria, for example. I mean, I think that's personal for me, but yeah, a lot of people were, I think they believed that there were no agendas. It was just uh, neutral coverage of the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. which I don't think was the case by Arab media. Right. So what would you say were the reasons that people's fear sort of disappeared at the moment when they were confronted with the police. It seems that in a lot of these revolutions, it, it seems like it came to or, or it came down to the moment when the people were sort of faced with the riot police and, and they stood their ground instead of running. What do you think caused that? I think I heard this term a lot in the book, the barrier of fear Mm -hmm. that was actually broken. And I don't think I need to elaborate that much about this, but it was in the book. Uh, I think few people said it clearly that this fear that existed for uh, maybe decades in the consciousness of Arab people at that time broke. I heard from someone who was in Syria that uh, some of the Syrian protesters who would go on Fridays to uh, show their solidarity with other Syrians being sniped by al-Assad's regime, he told me that he saw someone who was uh, uh, during the rituals to prepare for Jum'ah prayer in Syria, they would read I think uh, they would read Al-Fatiha. So basically they will announce that they are ready to die, which means when they watch for the prayer, they also watch for themselves to potentially be dead. I think that that tells a lot. I mean, I am very moved by this. I don't have enough theorization to explain it, but I feel like you. Like, how this happened? Where does this courage and uh, indifference to human safety come from. And I think that's the reason why it was either successful because people were unstoppable in Egypt, like you cannot really stand against them, or at the same time became so messy like in Syria or even Yemen because there are thousands of people who are ready to die just to remove Bashar al-Assad. And we are losing the best of these people day by day. Because they, they're not afraid anymore. And I have heard people saying before, uh, even after finishing the book, saying that we don't care we, we, if we die. Uh, that's normal. But at least we will not let this dictator enjoy his life without hearing people saying enough is enough. So I think it's, uh, it's potential in every human uh, being to at one point feel that enough is enough. It's either you live without saying anything or you feel like you will say it, you will voice yourself regardless of the consequences. And I think Egyptians, Tunisians, Yemenis, Libyans, Syrians reach that moment where they feel 
welcome to death if that if by death we're gonna uh, maybe prepare life a better life for our uh, sons and daughters right did you want to talk about anything else specifically that we haven't talked about I don't recall. I mean, I I feel I feel honestly that I uh, maybe I talk too much. Oh no! This is this is your moment to talk as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I I want to actually, if I have a word, maybe few words, I would thank my participants. I think they made it. Uh, not only they made the Arab Spring a reality, but also they made this book this book project a reality and without them uh, this book wouldn't happen are we going to have a book too an updated uh, sort of follow-up project i'm working on the syrian uh, uh, version of the arab spring and uh, the book is titled uh, syrian revolution and civil war so unfortunately the arab spring has turned for reasons that are not necessarily the Uh, product of people themselves had turned to be um, bloody in a country in a country like Syria or Yemen, uh, Yemen as well as uh, Libya. So maybe uh, now uh, people have the time to theorize what went wrong and why people like the participants I have in my book were not necessarily the ones who are now taken over. I mean, I know for sure some of the people I'm still in contact with, they are marginalized. They have nothing to say or to do with the reality of their countries now. How this happened, again, maybe we can blame the uh, Arab media, other Arab regimes. Maybe the people were not happy. I mean, the big brother was not happy with the fact that liberal and freedom lover Uh, loving people like these people will take over because maybe they will, these people were able to uh, excite drastic change. And maybe the picture of the Arab world as we see it now is that uh, there were limits put to people. Like you can change Mubarak, yes, but maybe you cannot, you're not allowed to change the entire regime. Maybe you can uh, remove Gaddafi, but you wouldn't be in charge of your country. There would be factions that will try to take over. Weapons talk louder than the voices of these people nowadays. Deeply rooted politics, even the same politics that existed before the Arab Spring, are now controlling the media. These people cannot have a say. Uh, This is a different reality. And unfortunately, when I read the book, I feel like, yeah, this is what eventually we wanted a better result of this because they were working hard on it. Unfortunately, you feel like the the outcome was not as they wanted, not that they have anything to do with it. This was still out of their control. So basically they are, they moved from one reality to face so many other realities and they are still in need of, I would say, intellectual revolutions. This culture of Uh, still feeling that you need to have a strong ruler uh, who can suppress voices like these is still there in the Arab world. A lot of people are still, they still believe that uh, someone like Mubarak is better to Egypt than a democratically elected leader. And also I think there is a a need for re-examining our Arab culture, like what kind of uh, critical thinking skills that we feel not present, they were not nursed by the regimes for decades. And now as we see these regimes are gone, we see the result of the lack of uh, good education, the lack of critical thinking, the lack of civil societies, and the lack of maybe independent uh, grass group, uh, or grassroots groups that can take over We see now the Islamists are more organized because they were working on this for uh, years, even before the Arab Spring. And they are trying to take over people who are uh, forming militias. They are uh, more powerful than uh, civil societies in Libya, for example. I I sense some kind of civil society from the uh, narratives that I read uh, in Libya. But I feel now I don't... 
I don't see that that's becoming a reality. All what we see is uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates are running from one place to another, controlling it. And if anyone like these participants uh, oppose them, they would be killed or be labeled as uh, non-Muslims. And so uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of these people, their countries are paying the price of the dictators who were not necessarily preparing people for this moment. It was the same in Syria. It's either me or chaos. They were always playing on this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the same. Now, see it in Egypt, in, uh, even in, uh, in Yemen, in uh, Libya, that, yeah, if the dictators are gone, they didn't prepare the country to function in a, in a sound system because there was no system at all. And you will see chaos for maybe years to come. But I hope that, I mean, people, uh, they know exactly what they want, uh, regardless of the means by which they will achieve uh, what they desire. But I, I, I am sure these, the same people will exist always in the Arab world. Mm -hmm. People who want democracy, people who are not necessarily in love uh, with the armed conflicts. They, they want to have nice uh, family, uh, good education, uh, better health sector. These are the same goals that motivated them to remove these dictators, I hope, same grievances will uh, drive them to remove all these bad players that we see in the Arab, uh, in the Arab world uh, after the dictators. Thank you for joining us, Asad Saleh. Looking forward to the second project. Is it also going to be narratives? Is it no, going to be auto no, it's no, not. It's okay. Yeah, I, I think I did my share. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Well, wishing you the best, and hopefully we can talk with each other once the second book is out. Well, I also would like to thank you so much for arranging this and uh, conducting it with me. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you to you and to your listeners. I appreciate it.